Little honey bees flying around, little green peas from the ground, buttermilk biscuits nice and brown. Bring it to the Tennessee farm table. Butter beans, peas, beets, and chard. Chickens running in the yard. Catfish frying in that lard. Bring it to the Tennessee farm table. Bring it to the Tennessee farm table. Good morning, and welcome to the Tennessee Farm Table, a show dedicated to the people of our community who produce, preserve, and prepare our regional foods. This is your hostess, Amy Campbell. That cute little theme song you just heard was performed and arranged by East Tennessee's own Emmy Sunshine. She's gotten to be very popular, and she's even sung on the Grand Old Opry. We're really proud of this young woman, and even more proud to say that she's from Monroe County, Tennessee. This morning, we're setting the table with apple stack cake. We're talking about the real apple stack cake that's made from dried apples, sorghum, and history from Appalachian traditions with our guest, Jill Durding Sausman. We have a brand new segment from Fred Sausman's Potluck Radio Series on the Chattanooga, Tennessee Baked Moon Pie. And Ronnie Lundy, author of the James Beard award-winning cookbook Vittles, shares her knowledge of the sorghum grain in history and how it's not the same as molasses. And if you're tuning in to the radio broadcast of the show, we get to hear a gospel number from Johnny Cash. Thank you so much for sitting here with us at our table by podcast or radio or computer. It is just an honor and a privilege to have your good company. Now let's get started. We visit first with Jill Durding Sausman of Johnson City, Tennessee. She and her husband, Fred Sausman, are keepers of stories and traditions of the foods of Appalachia and beyond. I went up there a couple of weeks ago and recorded her memories of her grandmother's apple stack cake where she grew up in Hilton's, Virginia, home of the Carter family fold. Well, we are sitting here talking with Fred Sossman and Jill Sossman, and it seems to me that y'all are quite a team, and I see a lot of pictures on Facebook of all these good foods that you eat. Oh, yes, we love food. Oh, yes. And there's this one picture that really struck me of you holding this beautiful apple stack cake. And I'm wanting to pull out some stories from you about that stack cake. First of all, is that an old family recipe? It sure is. It was my grandmother's recipe, Nevada Parker Durding, my paternal grandmother, I should say. Um, She was born in 1890, so, and I'm sure she helped her mother make the cake, so I know it's, it's probably well over 120 years old. Will you share with us how you make such a thing? It looks like a complicated process. It's just, it's a time-consuming process. Uh-huh. We make it, you can make it with any kind of fruit. Uh, some people use applesauce, some people use apple butter, mm-hmm. but the way tradi- it was traditionally made in my grandmother's home was to use dried apples. We called it a dried apple stack cake. It was always dried apples. She would dry her own apples in the sun, first of all, um, in the fall, to have them to use over the winter. And it it tastes so much better with dried apples because when you dry an apple, 
concentrates the flavor. So when you make a sauce with it, when you uh, boil them in water and let them cook for hours and hours and hours and, and then puree them afterwards and make a sauce with it, the sauce is much more flavorful than if you just use fresh apples. Fresh apple sauce is more watery and um, not as rich in flavor as the dried apple. So we use, we always use the dried apples and we always make thin layers of cake. My grandmother would roll the, the dough out. She would make five to seven layers depending on whether or not she wanted to keep a little bit back to make small cakes with. And she would actually roll the dough out and cut it with a scalloped edge pie tin. You can also use a cake pan, a nine or eight inch cake pan. And then she would take the, each layer and pick it up and flip it over onto the, the bottom of an iron skillet, you know, an iron skillet turned upside down oh, and bake them on top of an iron skillet, one layer at a time. Mm -hmm. The thinner the layer, uh, the better the cake. You wanna get it as thin as you can. So she would roll it to about an eighth to a quarter of an inch thick. And I, I try to do this today. <laughs> I'm not as good as she was at it, but um, I try to do it today. And the reason for the thin layers is because the cake, once you stack the cake and you put the, the uh, applesauce in between them, the cake absorbs the applesauce. And it's, if you, the thicker the layer, it won't you know, allow for that moisture to get uh, through all the layers. Mm -hmm. You take the cake and you don't eat it as soon as you bake it. I mean, when you bake each layer, it comes out just as hard as a cookie and because it is thin. And that's why you need the moisture of the apples to go in each layer to make it soft. Otherwise, you'd have trouble cutting it. And not only that, you want to let the cake rest, or as my grandmother would say, season, for two to three days, preferably three. And that allows that time in a, in a, uh, for the moisture to get into the layers. Now, you don't want to keep the cake for too long because it's, you know, with the apples and everything, it'll mold on you being so moist and everything. But usually it was never around long enough in our house. <laughs> so a week, about a week is as long as it'll last. Mm -hmm. My grandmother made the mistake one time of, you know, baking a cake. And she gave it to my uncle and his family. And he couldn't wait to get into it. And so the day that she gave it to him, he cut the cake. And she was furious. <laughs> she said, from now on, I'm keeping the cake for three days before I give it away. But she was known <clears throat> in our community for dried apple stack cakes. Uh, everybody that wanted one or got a hankering for one would call her and ask her to make one. She would make them for church supper she would make them for birthdays and special events and of course for the holidays but she was known for her dried apple stack cakes everybody knew nevada parker Darting's dried apple stack cakes in in the hilton's community where i grew up well that is real close to the carter family fold it sure is it Did sure you ever is go over there? oh yes many times <laughs> many times in fact uh, jeanette carter uh, ap carter's daughter was a cook in our elementary school in the kitchen so and, and I helped her out when you were in eighth grade if you had good grades you could go help out in the lunchroom at, at school and I got to do that and, and worked with her of course my family my uncles and aunts went to school with the uh, June Carter Cash and her sisters 
So, uh, yes, I'm very well familiar with the Carter family. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to the Tennessee Farm Table podcast and broadcast on the radio waves out of Knoxville, Tennessee, every Saturday morning at 9 on 89.9 WDVX. And listen anytime to the podcast at TennesseeFarmTable.com. Our first guest today is Jill Durning Sossman on the topic of her grandmother's old-fashioned Appalachian apple stack cake. After the break, we'll hear a little bit more from Jill about this cake. Support for the Tennessee Farm Table is brought to you in part by Magpie's Bakery in downtown North Knoxville, just one block off Broadway on North Central Street. And Magpie's couldn't be prouder to be featured in the latest issue of Martha Stewart Weddings. The Magpie Holiday Menu is now available on the website, including the apple stack cake made with organic dried apples and other Thanksgiving favorites including pumpkin pie, pecan pie, and pumpkin cheesecake. Order by noon on Monday, November 20 to ensure your Thanksgiving order has been placed by phone at 865-673-0471. Details and ordering information at magpiescakes.com since 1992. Magpie's Cakes. All butter, all the time. Let's return now to our visit with Jill Durding Sossman and hear more about her grandmother's old-time apple stack cake. Coming up, Fred Sossman shares a segment from his potluck radio series on the topic of the Chattanooga, Tennessee baked moon pie. My, uh, I am the only grandchild that has kept this recipe going. Out of all the grandchildren, I'm the only one that has kept the, that he's even tried to bake the cake and kept it going. And I actually grew up across the street from my grandmother and I was always at her house when she was cooking. And I was there just because I I liked to be there. And she would let me when she was baking, she'd, she'd give me some of the dough to eat, too. Back then, we didn't worry about salmonella and the eggs, you know, and eating raw cookie dough. But when she would be making the stack cake, I, I was there for the dough. And I didn't realize that while watching her make those cakes, that I was actually learning how to make the cake. And I was around when all the other grandchildren weren't around. So I remembered I remembered her putting all the flour in a in a big huge bowl and making a well and dumping all the ingredients and mixing it in with her hands. And I don't do that myself. I I do use a cake mixer, but um, she would actually do that and work in enough dough, uh, work in enough flour to get the consistency that she needed to roll it out like cookie dough. And once she did that and, and then made the layers and, and everything, she would always give me a little, set a little dough to the side to give me. So, <laughs> so that's why I was there. But I was learning. And so that's probably stands for reasons why I'm the only grandchild that has attempted the cake. But it does take a long time because I, she would bake one layer at a time. I, I usually put them on cookie sheets and bake two layers at a time. 
And then once uh, they're all baked, you let them cool, and then you, of course, have the sauce that you've made, and you put about a cup in between the layers, and then put it, set it in a cool, dry place to cure or season or whatever, just to get softer and to make it more uh, able to able to slice. She would slice the layers so thin so it would last longer, you know, and more people could eat it. So I usually make it every fall for Fred's Appalachian Food Waste class and let the students there try it. The recipe that I have does not call for any spices at all. It, um, you know, my grandmother made it back in the Depression and in, a, in the Hilton's community, you couldn't buy the spices that you needed during the Depression. So we've learned to let the, the flavors of the sorghum and the um, apples, the dried apples, come through. And I will mention this. Everybody when, where I grew up and, and where my grandmother lived and everything thought they were making molasses. And they called it molasses. And she called it a molasses, well, actually, she called it a molasses stack cake um, or a molasses fruit cake. And they say molassy, not molasses. Um, my sister says lassie fruit cake <laughs> or lassie, sta lassie, lassie cake. That's what she says, lassie cake. And they, my sister said, I will never call it anything else because that's, the, that's exactly what she called it. So, um, but it, anyway, I know that it, you know, it's sorghum, but everybody, everybody still wants to call it molasses. That's a hard habit to break in it. Mm -hmm. That kind of runs all over Fred, doesn't it? <laughs> well, he probably wasn't around the molasses, the molasses boilings that we had when uh -huh. it got, yes. the whole community got together yes. where he grew up. So this was something that was more introduced to him later. But when we were little kids, we were around all of that. You know, it, well, my grandfather's having a molasses bowl, and everybody come. Yes. You know, and and we would be there. The kids would be playing around, and then once they would take the the pan and put it into the kettles that they kept, or the jars that they to cool, us kids would take uh, a cane stick and slice it at an angle, and then scrape the pan with it. You know, oh, and yummy. eat what was in the pan. Oh, how so, you know, and it's, it's hard to break. I find myself, you know, saying molasses or whatever instead of sorghum, but I, I understand the fact that molasses comes from sugar cane and cane won't grow here. So <laughs> we have sorghum cane. And you've been listening to a visit with Jill Durding Sausman of Johnson City, Tennessee. Information and details about my guests can be found at TennesseeFarmTable.com under the link that says listen to the show. There's this back and forth between her and her husband Fred on what to call sorghum. Most people around here say molasses or sorghum, but that just runs all over Fred because sorghum is not molasses and molasses isn't sorghum. So that's kind of why she was talking about that there at the end of that segment. And coming up, James Beard Cookbook Award winner Ronnie Lundy shares with us the sorghum grain and its history and how it's used. And in this recording of Ronnie Lundy, you'll hear the voice of Mary Constantine, food writer for the Knoxville News Sentinel. Okay, 
One of the things that I have seen in a lot of uh, recipes of late is sorghum flour, mm -hmm. and then there are, I don't know, is it the seed, is it a berry, is it a kernel? I think you refer to it as a kernel. Right, that can so, be popped. Yeah, so yeah. Tell, yeah, talk that would to be me the, about. Yeah, that would be the seed. So. Um, Sorghum is a grass like corn. In fact, a lot of people have driven past it going, that's really short corn, I wonder when it's gonna get its ears. And that's sorghum out, out in the field. And so it, how, how high does it usually grow? Well, it can grow taller than a man, okay. but but um, but you can, usually when you see it, it's it, as they get ready to process it, it's, it's shorter than that. I would say maybe about five feet. Mm -hmm. But, um, um, Sargum grain, it's the same plant, but the sargum grain, um, the stalk doesn't have the sugar coming up in it in the way that sweet sargum does. So for, sargum grain is an ancient grain that comes either from Africa or Asia. We're not exactly sure where specifically it originates and it starts being used in a culinary fashion um, in, um, uh, China and India and Africa, different parts of Africa, and uh, it's used as a grain there, and it's also used, I, I like to say that about 15 minutes after they figured out they could make bread with it, they decided they could make beer with it, too. So <laughs> so it was used to ferment for, for beer as a grain, but um, no one used sargum syrup at that time. Um, it, we don't have any record of it being used as a sweetener. It was also used as animal fodder so that when the slave trade began, sargum traveled with the slaves to the regions where they were both to feed the people and to feed animals um, at, at that time. And that's how it first comes to the United States, probably in the 1600s. But that's not sargum cane, that's the, that's the sargum grain. At some point, and we don't know where, but in fairly modern times, probably around in the 1800s, because that's when the research takes off, um, they, someone discovers that there are certain strains of the sargon plant that have the sugar inside of it, and then they start figuring out how to grow that and how to process it as a sugar, and they bring it to the United States. It, it takes off in the United States. They try it in Europe, but it takes off in the United States because it comes here in, at 1850, so politically it's very attractive to the northern states to create a sugar of their own so they can um, kind of... Um, cart cut the sugar cartel in the south and it also comes into South Carolina and there are growers that are interested there because they want to create a sugar industry of their own that's not dependent upon cane. Uh, yeah. And After the Civil War they discover that beets can be made into sugar that's much less complicated process and so that's what takes off in the Midwest and the North and the rest of the country and we get the sugar cane business back in Louisiana but in the mountain south we continue to produce sorghum. So we have never, um, we largely grew the sorghum grain in this country to feed animals. It, it's a large animal fodder but with the interest now in gluten-free products it is a gluten-free um, grain so it's showing up now in a culinary sense and then somebody cleverly just looked at the at the uh, kernels the green kernels and said um, hey 
I wonder if we can pop this like popcorn, and lo and behold, you can. So, <laughs> so, but they are two different things, and and uh, it's interesting because one of the things I like to explain to people about sorghum savor is that what we're what I'm talking about in this book is strictly sorghum syrup. Um, there's, I think, there's maybe sorghum flour in one recipe, but it's but it's really a book about well, that, sorghum that's syrup. That's good. I, mm-hmm. I didn't, you know, to know the the difference there. Yeah. Um, you had said that. This is Roy Milner, Chief Fermentation Officer for the Black Ray Farm Brewery, and you're listening to the Tennessee Farm Table. Let's join our friend Fred Salzman from Johnson City now and hear a brand new segment from his Potluck Radio series on the Moon Pie. This is Potluck Radio. I'm Fred Saussman. The Moon Pie turns 100 this year. The idea for the original Graham cookie stuffed with marshmallow and covered with chocolate was born in the coal mining country of eastern Kentucky. Miners at a country store told Earl Mitchell from the Chattanooga Bakery in Tennessee they'd like that kind of confection in their lunch pails. And according to legend, one miner framed the moon with his hands and said, make it this big. The Moon Pie's legendary pairing with R.C. Cola took off when the country duo Lonzo and Oscar sang about it in 1951. Give me an R.C. Cola and a moon pie play maple on the hill. Moon Pies and R.C. Colas once sold for a nickel each, the working person's lunch. Moon Pies were often warmed up on automobile dashboards, but Tori Johnston, Moon Pie's marketing person, says the microwave does a better job. Everybody, even in this building, will tell you it's the best way to eat a Moon Pie. So if it's a mini Moon Pie, you'll put it in the microwave, you know, take it out of the wrapper, put it on a plate, heat it for, you know, five to seven seconds. Um, a big double-decker, if you want to do that, that's a 10 to 12 second job. I mean, even if it's a stale Moon Pie, even if it's past its code date, it brings it right back to its youth. I mean, it makes it soft, the marshmallow you know, the moisture from the marshmallow gets up into the cookie, and it, I mean, it is decadent. Over that 100-year history, new flavors and sizes were added, and today, Chattanooga Bakery turns out about a million moon pies a day. For Potluck Radio, I'm Fred Saucer. We want to say thank you so much for your great company here today on the Tennessee Farm Table. We hope that you can join us again right back here at 9 o'clock at WDVX.com or online at TennesseeFarmTable.com. Our theme song was written by myself, Amy Campbell, and beautifully performed by East Tennessee's own Emmy Sunshine. More information about Emmy Sunshine at theemmysunshine.com. That's spelled T-H-E-E-M-I sunshine.com. We want to say thank you to WDVX for bringing to you pure community broadcasting just like this show. They are our media partner, and we couldn't do this without them. More information at WDVX.com. We'd love to invite you to connect with us on Twitter and Facebook at TennesseeFarmTable.com and check out our podcast. We hope you have a 
good week and keep on digging. This has been a Campbell Creative Incorporated production. <laughs>